0: Welcome to the RevTech Revolution podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Betsy Peters. She is joined by Yan Yang, Chief Data Scientist at Deserve, to talk about how to go from big data to good data, how good data teams are like consultants, and the importance of making your data models fair and undiscriminatory. All of this and more
1: on the RevTech Revolution podcast.
0: Jan, it is a true pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of time here at the RevTech Revolution.
1: Thank you, Betsy. Nice to meet you, too.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about your background and your career journey and how it pertains to your work at Deserve today?
1: I had my PhD studies in Stanford in computational engineering about more than 10 years ago. And uh, that is a quite obscure word, computational engineering. And in in fact, uh, that I was more focused on operations research, doing a lot of public policy analysis, involving like running through a lot of complex statistical model to evaluate different kinds of public policies, mostly in the healthcare and the security area, and then uh, apply the most optimal ones and find the recommendations. And uh, after I graduate, I I worked in fir- I worked first at Yammer which was acquired by Microsoft, and then subsequently as, at Wealthfront. And in both companies, I worked in data infrastructure side, learning how to build a big data infrastructure, as well as how to design a data system properly. And next, I went to Salesforce, where I worked on the Einstein platform. That platform is trying to gather all the CIM data that Salesforce has, and try to design a easy-to-use system so end user can, and pull all the data in and build all sorts of AI models themselves without a lot of expertise in this area. Uh, So it's more like an AI platform. Uh, Some of the common thread throughout my PhD study and my first few jobs is that there are a lot of focus on democratizing the data, even the analytics or even the AI within the company organization. So it's trying to empower the users to perform a lot of these tasks that usually are reserved by experts. I mean, and you, you, company, people in the company can learn how to ingest the data themselves, run analytics, and even get some insights out of it. So that's actually a very interesting point. And in this process, I was actually working with the founder and CEO of Deserve, Kalpesh, and in this all the time as a part-time, uh, part-time, help. Help. I worked with a lot of projects, um, including the very first underwriting a model that Deserve uses to underwrite international students that come to the U.S. without a critical background. That's how the Deserve was first started. And then in t- 2018, I came to join uh, Deserve full-time and to lead the data science and data engineering Yeah,
0: Those are some impressive credentials, and clearly you're very underqualified for this conversation. Tell me a little bit about Deserve's value prop and and why you decided to join the team. It's It's got a bit of a social mission, too, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. So this first started as ab a, a B2C company and we issue credit card for come for people who come to US who don't have a credit background international students. The founder is a was used to be an international student. I used to be an international student. You came to the US without a lot of credit background and you can't really get access to the financial system very easily. Can build your credit score, and as many of us know that without that, you cannot really get to your next step in terms of a lot of financial planning and and get 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 a good hold of your financial life in the U.S. Right, so, so that's where we get started, and over the years we have like a, a transitioned into more of a B2B business where we offer a modern credit card platform. And what does that mean? And for example, if a company wants to issue their own credit card. Today, they they will usually choose to go to either a big bank like Chase, a Barclays, right, or to a processor like First Data, who can offer them sort of integration for them to build their own solution. So, Deserve offers that modern platform that can help them to do the whole thing end to end. And uh, signing the con- starting from signing the contract, you will get a full credit card program running at the end of the day, at the end of the period, right? I mean. Te- technologically wise I um, mean uh, credit card is a very mature product it has been here like say I don't know 40 50 60 years right? I mean and there's another a lot of things changed in the past decade or so uh when I say a modern platform what I mean are the things like in cloud infrastructure like microservice ac- architecture like uh, real-time data or real-time decision all these are hallmarks of modern day technology companies right? I mean and we are trying to bring all this into credit card business space. And what this means is that it will unlock a lot of, a lot of features and, uh, and a lot of like things that pre- benefits that previously wasn't, was not commonly seen in this field. For example, we have unparalleled to market speed. You can launch a credit card in very short period because of all the flexibility and all the infusion of modern technology stacks. And also we have a lot of flexibility in API integration. You can present to your customer, a f- front that is truly your own customized uh, like uh, journey and it's not a, uh, it's not something of a big bang uh, fronted by a big bang image or something like that it's your own marketing brand your own experience user experience right and and also we are like uh, we are having this so called digital first platform where we put smartphone as the center of the entire experience i mean traditionally you use websites to integrate with a lot of your uh, credit card all of your credit cards or uh, any access through the phone is uh, afterthought so to speak right I mean we are in a modern age where people interact more and more on their phones so we want to put a smartphone as at the, a at the center stage at the center of your own time experiences and that's that is a very new value proposition
0: it's fascinating um are mm-hmm. you enabling others to do tricky data sets like what you started out with with international students is that part of what you're doing or is it much more for the average credit card issuer?
1: That's a good question. So, as I said, this is an end to end credit card platform, right? I mean, that it includes a lot of diffi- diffi- difficult problems what you will have to encounter when you are trying to issue a credit card. Underwriting is undoubtedly one of the right. more thorny problems in the, in the process. Right? I mean, so we offer consultancy in that area. We will help you to shape your underwriting policies. We have experiences underwriting international students without credit experience. We have experiences in underwriting subprime people, uh, super prime people, and we even have a business card program. So we can we can underwrite different segments, and we have a lot of experiences in doing so. And we will offer all this lending as a part of the um, platform package.
0: That's a that's a really cool value prop. So I'm curious about how the things that you worked on in Stanford, when you were doing your PhD on public policy analysis, basically connects to the problems you're solving today at Deserve?
1: That's a very interesting question, Percy. Not many people ask that because um, what I did in PhD is not directly related to finance, but there's actually a lot of connections in, in all of them, right? And, I mean, that's more than a decade ago. People use a lot of complex models to assess performance. And there are a lot of uh, potential uh, solutions. And as you may expect, some of the most performant solutions usually are the most costly, um, having the most side effects. And you have to make some kind of trade-off to arrive at a sweet spot. Then fast forward 10 years, we have machine learning. It's all the rage right now. And it actually greatly improves efficiency where you can find that sweet spot. But the fundamental problem is still the same. You have the so-called constraint optimization problem, which translates to normal. Layman's 10 is just you want to optimize something, but there are some other, other criteria you have to fulfill, right? I mean, you are trying to trade off things, for example, in Deserve, when you're doing underwriting, you are trading off how many people you can approve uh, versus what's the default rate of your customer base. I mean, you, can, you, can, you cannot get all in on one aspect. You have to find a sweet spot. I mean, economy. People always say that trade-off is the currency of all decision-making.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And it's it's yeah. It's basically trying to find that that good good sport. and sometimes to find that incremental one percent, two percent improvement can be very beneficial for the entire business process. For example, if I can keep the approval rate at the same level, but reduce the default rate by half a percentage point, I can adjust my model to say. Instead, staying, the, staying at the same risk level, but then we can up five percent more people, and all these incremental are actually extremely hard because uh, you have a lot of you have all the low-hanging fruit taken already, and the the model and the, all the analytics trying to find when you are doing very well, how do you get an additional five percent, ten percent? Yeah, and that is actually a common theme across all the quantitative analysis I have done in my PhD de- days and in all my jobs.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And that's something that we all wrestle with in one way or another, particularly the listeners of RevTech Revolution. You know, there's huge data sets um, and learnings that can be gained by putting constraints on those data sets, right? And trying to find that sweet spot around risk or around cost, uh, whatever the case may be. So um, I think one of the things that our listeners might be interested in learning from you is, as the head of a data center of excellence, what are some of the important things you bring to this kind of constraint question? And then as a follow-up to that question, what are the important things for other folks who are in your shoes to do to make sure that people trust the data?
1: Uh, Yeah, so nowadays, a lot of companies are uh, striving to become data-driven, basically uh, making decisions, improving their business flow based on data, not based on heuristic decisions, right? We used to have like a joke, joking term called Hippo, which is the highest-paid person's For opinion, sure. and you don't want that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it still <laughs> does. Yeah, it still does.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's it's quite easy to say that your company is like data-driven, but to get to there, there are a, a few things you should set up. Um, in my experiences, one of the first things you want to work on is that to set up of a uh, organization level, some kind of like good metrics. How do you measure outcomes? How do you uh, how do you make sure that everything is measured by data? And if if something is measurable, first question is, and if it's measurable, how do we get that metric thing going? It's a lot easier if you have a top-down push on making the entire organization into a data-driven culture. Right? And the second thing that is often overlooked is that you have to reduce the cost of, of exploration. It's not only a few people in the company has the control of the data. I mean, they are the master of like giving out all the information to the rest of the company. That will not scale your business. Uh, to scale your business in a data-driven way, you have to make sure that all different people in the company of different functional groups will have access to good data. They will even have access to a lot of good explorations. They can get to their own conclusion. In that way, the data team in a lot of companies that are successful, I have worked with, uh, usually revolves around the data team being sort of internal consultancy. People come to the data team with questions. The data team will work with a different functional team to get answers for them. But answers is not the only deliverable of the team. Uh, a large part of the deliverable is to train and educate other teams and helping them to learn how to use the data, how to interpret the data. And more importantly, how to question whether you we have the data necessary to make a lot of business process successful? Because all these questions, most commonly, doesn't come from the data team. They come from all the individual business functional groups.
0: Yeah, I like that. Uh, It sounds like the thread of democratization is in that part of your conversation as well, is really making sure that everybody has access to it. But I guess the corollary to me is how, how once they have access to it and they're starting to try and answer questions that are pertinent to their individual responsibilities, how do you make sure that they trust the data? Because it it can be really difficult to make sure that you've got the accuracy, you've got the completeness, you've got all of the factors that yield good answers.
1: Yeah. So data quality is actually the thing that I emphasize most when uh, I'm trying to build a data team. I mean, this is often an area that is overlooked. Uh, yeah, Bessie, you are just uh, like spot on. And a lot of companies are very uh, hyper-focused in getting the data into their warehouse. So making sure they have the necessary data to perform everything. And once they have that data, they sort of forget. They need to keep on checking the accuracy of the data to make sure the quality is correct. And so uh, one of the responsibilities of a data team, in my view, is to make sure that you have a common data quality framework that is run on top of all your data. The so This framework should uh, Incorporate the business recommendations from all the business functional group. How to check whether the data is correct, and run all these rules periodically. Alert different teams if the data quality can be wrong sometimes. I mean, and it inevitably will. What fa- what what can fail will always fail. Right?
0: Especially with data quality.
1: <laughs> yes. Especially with data quality. And also, you you will need to establish um, proper data lineage, and that is something that is often talked about because depending on use case. One piece of data may be present on different warehouses in your organization. It's not in one place. It's sometimes in a dozen places. So you need to know, like, data A is derived from data B, is derived from data C. So you you, you establish that a proper chain, and so that whenever one piece of data quality fails, you know that on all the downstream and data will need to be taken with a great, uh, a big grain of salt.
0: That's good advice. Tell me what you advise teams on data governance what what does data governance mean um to people who are starting to get that set up inside their culture and what are uh, like one or two things you would recommend people focus on
1: yeah data governance is tricky and because it's it sort of like a it's, it's sort of like opposite to the notion of having data democratization where everyone can access. I mean, that's, that's again, the trade-off you have to do. I mean, you want as, as many people to access as many much data as possible. But at the same time, you want to make sure that they, they get proper access to the proper data. They have to right? play nice in the so sandbox, it- <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so... Uh, some of the things, the first things you can do include, like, you, you, you want to good, uh, define the roles and data leads properly. I mean, who in your company requires certain pieces of data. Uh, usually um, PII data, personally identifiable data that people's phone, people's email address, people's, even people's social security number are not required for most of the analysis. Right? I mean, in a lot of uh, 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 backend analysis, you just need to know how to identify a specific person whether this person from this system is the same customer from the other system, whether they are the same person. You don't need to know what's their phone number, what's their email address to, to do that analysis. So in these cases, we don't want to ever even review those data. That being said, there are other use cases, right? For example, you, you do a marketing project. I mean, you want to reach out to the customer. Obviously, you need to have the email address or some sort of contact to do that. So all these roles and data needs to, be, needs to be defined by the infrastructure team and the security team jointly and to understand uh, all these data in these warehouses, in these pipelines are used for these purposes and, it's, and some others are for other purposes. And, and you should always question yourself whether you need to have a certain piece of data stored, especially if it's a sensitive information, right? And when you're organizing your data warehouse, put in catalogs so you know that this is level one access, this level two, uh, or whatever catalog system that you've, you feel that's reasonable for you. Then that way you can help to under, understand what are the dependencies in between them and then build up the proper data lineage. As I have mentioned, uh, sensitive data may drive other in- analysis downstream and you want to make sure that they are in the same catalog as the uh, source data, right. And for people who are new into this field, there are a lot of vendors out there who offer tokenization and encryption services. You can take advantage of them if you don't need to store data in your own system, you don't have to, right? Uh, for example, Deserve um, and tokenize all our sensitive information, like social security number, like credit card number with an encryption service. So um, people in Deserve don't even see those things. Um, we can't even see those things. And uh, and so when all this information flows into the Deserve system, it's already encrypted. Um, so that actually removes a lot of like hassle of yourself to manage this process. For sure,
0: that's great. So... It sounds like you've got the uh, data governance thing nailed. It Deserve, what are some of the thorniest problems you're facing with data quality and when it comes to machine learning and, and how have you overcome them?
1: Oh, how much time do we have <laughs> for that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so there are some common things that uh, everyone in the data field is suffering, more or less, right? I mean, one of them is a lack of sufficient high-quality data. We already went through that. I mean, how do it for especially for small startups? It kind of feels like a chicken and egg problem. You don't have the product, you don't get data, you don't get data, you don't have the product. Yeah, right. right. So, so, I mean, it's it break out that loop, right? I mean, so it's important to do some sort of iterative approach. Start with something small, even heuristic. The first model that tries to deserve users that tries to underwrite international students is heuristic. I based it on a lot of social. Social science papers, a lot of like studies, and and it, there are a lot of heuristic on bonus on it. But once we start pushing the program out, we get the data. Then we can start to reinforce it, and we can make it more and more data driven, right? And in that process, data quality is very important. You have to set data quality in place. You have to set data cleansing in the proper way, so so that your model is actually ingesting something other than garbage, right? Mm. Yeah, and. Uh, that's one of the problems, and another problem we usually run into, especially in highly regulated industry like lending business, is that you have to be able to interpret your model. I know that for uh, for companies that do not operate in such environment, model interpretability sometimes is overlooked because I mean, why do I need to interpret it if it works? This is often often uh, the document, b- right? The, the black the <laughs>
0: black the, box works, co- so don't open it up. The black
1: box, yeah. yeah. <laughs> The counter argument is that yes, you don't need to understand it if it works, but it will not work forever. One day it will fail, and if you understand how it got the I- initial uh, results, it's a, lot, it's a lot easier for you to know how to fix it rather than um, in just uh, just tinkering with the box, right? I mean, uh, in recent years there are a lot of research going into this field, and there are some standard practices. I mean, to to measure the interpretive of your model. And I mean I mean uh, it's just nice for each data science team to invest some effort into it. To understand, I mean, f- starting from a simple model. Don't just go one step into the most sophisticated model you will you will ever have. Yes, you will get performance, but you will lose a lot of insights along the way. As you build a simple model and then expand it, then you will come to realize what are the information. See- and the signals that are most important. And that sometimes drives your other business process. Oh, maybe we found some some new insights and in the process of building that model. And and this is usually where uh, the interesting things happen, right? I think that's the that's, uh, two honest problems I've been facing right now.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that our listeners experience around interpretability is they're buying software that has AI models in it that suggests next best action, so something along the lines of Einstein, right? To They're looking at big data that is perhaps in a CRM and starting to make recommendations on correlations and all of that. If you're using a third-party software, what do you do about model interpretability? Like, how do you think about that problem?
1: Yeah, There are a few ways of uh, interpreting the model, I mean, uh, including black box and white box approach. I mean, a white box approach in which you have to open up the model. And that's usually happening when you are building the model in-house. But it's not the only way available. In a black box approach, I mean, you, you still know that what kind of input gives you what kind of output. So you can still run analysis to see, okay, which are the attributes that most influence the output and how we should do it. And this actually ties to another question about uh, whether your results are making sense, whether your results are fair or are discriminating people. And that's also another very hot topic, right? So all in all, you will need to uh, always try to see if the model prediction is making sense and what is it saying about your input, even if the model itself is third party.
0: Yeah, and if you're doing due diligence on a piece of software that has ai and is making recommendations to you about your pipeline your sales pipeline what are a couple of good questions to ask before you actually purchase
1: obviously you want to ask about the performance and how the performance arrived what's the sample size of the, how they used to get these results but it's also important to know that what do they uh use to, to get that model whether that whether the input signals and everything is aligning with your use case. Uh, your customer base will be very different more often than not uh, compared to the customer base they use to train their like uh, generic models. So uh, a lot of these third-party generic model uh, scores are very useful partly because they are built with very large data sizes that some of the smaller companies may not have access to themselves. But uh, uh, I'm always advocating using their outputs combined with your own data to try to make further de- decisions on top of it, instead of blindly plugging that number into your system. I mean, try to understand how they get the number and the correlate that with your own customer base information, and then make use of that score more ef- more effectively for your own business use use case.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So let me shift gears a little bit because we've been kind of dancing around Salesforce, and you've got some background there. How is dealing with big data different at a company like Deserve compared to a large company like Salesforce?
1: Well, I mean, uh, big data in big companies are much bigger. That's the first part. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, so there are different priorities. For example, um, you may not need the most cutting-edge data, the big data processing technology because your data scale is not there yet. But you do need a lot of the same good practice around the big data and inside the company how you handle the data uh, storage how you design the data warehouse according to your use case all these practice still stick what is uh, very different in a small startup compared to a big company is that in the startup things move like 10 times faster so sometimes you are forced to make delivery of a product or system faster than you can uh, you you can like uh, properly properly the whole like a uh, whole infrastructure at this time it's it's useful. Use, it's useful to like leverage some of the uh, third-party solutions or open-source solutions that can help you to get there. Right? I mean, and uh, being in a st- small company means that you are more free to uh, experiment with newer technologies, and you you usually have a much more like cutting-edge technology stack, not because. Uh, you are small but because that you just have like a lower cost of exploration yeah right? i mean so that you should use that to your advantage i mean try to stay on top of what is currently m- uh, most popular in the industry why people do that why people do design certain systems sometimes big companies and uh, design their data systems specifically to address their needs which may not be applicable to your use cases so you need to take all those in- things into consideration
0: all right so let's shift gears again as an internal consultant to many business units, what do you advise is the most important thing to do when the volume and the velocity and the complexity, of the data just gets really overwhelming?
1: Yeah. So there are like a, a few steps I usually take when I'm setting up data pipelines or data systems for a company. The first thing is to set up priorities as in you un- understand the, how data plays in the business strategy of your company. Whether your company is selling data, or whether the company the data is not uh, being s- sold exclusively, but it's used as part of the enhancement to your product appeal, or if the data is purely feeding into your analytics, not into any product. Right? I mean, so uh, and also, what are the use cases? Whether it's real time, or whether it's uh, like a, a, where the latency is extremely important, you need to get a uh, decision out very fast, or it is a big batch, like an analytics-driven approach. So all these questions will affect how you design your data infrastructure. infrastructure. And then you need to have a good data infrastructure team. I know the data science is all the rich now, but to have a proper data science team, you will want to build a good data engineering team, a data infrastructure team, will okay. help you to get all the pipeline, all the warehouse in place. Uh, you know which piece of data, what use okay. case corresponds to what kind of system. Right? And then thirdly is that, I mean, make sure that your security team is on board. Uh, always work with your security team very closely. I mean, and that is uh, uh, without uh, needing to, to be emphasized enough. I mean, so uh, the security is an important component. You want to make sure that uh, the data is governed properly in your system. Otherwise it will all go haywire later. And then uh, I would recommend the people who start to have a unified analytic tool, that means uh, the data warehouse can be uh, like can, there can be a lot of data, data warehouses, I mean, many varieties depending on the use case. But you should have a central analytics tool where all the people in the company can go to that tool to get the re- analytics results and can share with each other. That just reduces the cost of exploration that I mentioned earlier. So all these are good practices. I mean, overall, building a strong data science team and data engineering team will help the company in the long term. Yeah.
0: I'm gonna- throw a crystal ball question at you. Um, I was at an O'Reilly conference uh, three or four years ago on AI, and I went to the Microsoft booth and they said, within four years, you're going to be able to open up Excel and AI will solve most of your biggest problems. What's your prediction that you could put about the maturation of AI on in the next two or three years? What are the what are the frontiers that are just going to become de rigueur that um, AI is right on that cusp of solving that might surprise the listeners?
1: Yeah, so a lot of recent AI research has been focusing on the deep learning aspects. I mean, computer vision, uh, natural language processing, and uh, human-computer interaction, all, uh, all these are, are advancing at a very fast speed, and there are a lot of like amazing like breakthroughs. Uh, on the other hand, we have uh, more traditional, like uh, structured data exploration. How do we solve a, a problem with very like well-defined data? I mean, a predictive problem. All those, uh, we also have advances there, but not as fast as the uh, deep learning aspect. Right? I mean, so uh, but 90% of the time, your roadblock is not how advanced the technology is or how advanced your AI technology is. Your roadblock is usually you do not have uh, decent enough data and your data doesn't make sense or uh, it seems to make sense but uh, there are a lot of like quality issues on the list and that is why uh, it doesn't give you the correct conclusions and those are the problems that will not easily go away because it's only partly a technical problem it's a it's into a, a much larger extent a business problem yeah how do you define your things correctly or a human uh, a human uh,
0: behavior to, problem too right
1: yeah. yeah. To, uh, to make computers understand and to make computers make predictions, you have to teach them what each thing means, right? I mean, you, you need to define your data accurately. If your data itself has internal inconsistencies, there's no way that even the most cutting-edge like model will give you reliable predictions.
0: We 100% agree with you uh, and run into that all the time. This has been really a pleasure, Jan. Thank you so much for spending some time with us at the RevTech Revolution. One Last question before we go. Sure. If you could leave our audience with one piece of advice about getting the balance between good data and big data right, what would it be?
1: Yeah, that's sort of an eternal problem. I mean, especially in a regulated industry, this question got asked a lot. I mean, how do you make sure that your model is not doing bad things? How do you make sure that your model is fair? There is a so-called term. This term of fairness-aware machine learning, right? Uh, So there are a lot of different ways you can do, but the most importantly, at the very like uh, fundamental level, you you must uh, vet the input uh, signals into model properly, and then you must understand what are the things you can use and you should not, you should stay away from. Some of the signals are themselves discriminatory, and you should not uh, introduce that into your model if discrimination is a big concern here, right? Uh, And Just like when you are periodically assessing the uh, performance of a model, you always assess whether your model is still up to date from a performance point of view. You should also assess them from a fairness or discrimination point of view. Uh, Where in Deserve, we often run the uh, analysis to see if the model is uh, imposing any sort of discriminatory effect. You should include that as part of your model monitoring process.
0: And yeah, not to interrupt you, but just um, to help the listeners understand a little bit are there one or two um factors that you can share with us that gave you discriminatory outputs when you were playing around with model or building it to begin with or something that's counterintuitive in that regard that we wouldn't be thinking of
1: in general i mean you do not want to use like geographical data too much at, at very high importance because I mean, there are like a, a discriminatory factors associated with that, right? I mean, and you need to be careful. Yeah, you need to be careful of using things like uh, school or major, or a lot of things that educational variables yeah, that yeah. can can be in itself misleading. But it, I would say it largely depends on your use case and, and how much street you want to go. I mean, uh, if you want to be completely like a, one hundred percent safe. You probably are left with no, not much data sure. you, can, right. you can use with, right? So there is again that common theme of striking at uh, like a good trade off, and there are even like cutting edge like uh, machine learning uh, methods where they use an adversarial model. They build the two models: one to try to enhance enhance uh, performance, the second one try to second guess and and make sure that it's, it's being discriminated, and the two models being trained together. All these are, are quite fun like a, like an interesting topic set that people can explore. All
0: right. Again, just thank you so much for all your time, Jan. It's been really fun talking to you. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime soon.
1: Same here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the RevTech Revolution podcast. If you enjoyed
0: this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues who would benefit from it. If you'd like to learn more about how Reva can help improve your customer data operations, check out RevaEngine.com.